Uh, I had my booster shot on Wednesday, and it's given me a bit of a throat thing. Uh, I've had a bunch of rat tests. Meg and I have been taken, and I'm negative, so I'm here. <clears throat> You're gonna have to bear with me. Uh, but I believe God wants to speak to us today, uh, and so I hope it's not a distraction to you. My normal beautiful dulcet tones are gone. Um, but hey, we're gonna have a great fun as. Today's message in Ecclesiastes takes us to some interesting places, uh, but it, it gets good as we look at Jesus. The best part of high school science were the experiments, especially when you get to burn things and set them on fire. I remember doing this prac where we would burn different nuts and we'd measure their potential energy, and I'll never forget the Brazil nut has the most energy. Now, the best thing about high school science were the experiments. The worst part of high school science were the prac reports, sucking all the fun out of lighting things on fire. We had to record our observations, hypothesis, variables, results, and conclusions. So one of us would be burning things up. The other one of us would be writing it all down, all of our observations. Observation, the fire was hot. Observation, the Brazil nut took longer to burn up. Observation, the cashews are missing. Observation, Angus looks a bit suspect. Now, this is how I want you to imagine the teacher in Ecclesiastes operating, recording his observations of what he sees and making conclusions. The book of Ecclesiastes is somewhat of an experiment in the wisdom and meaning of life under the sun with shocking conclusions. Vanity of vanities, he says. Everything is meaningless. Have you wondered why is this in the Bible? And how does this fit within God's plan of redemption? Well, Ecclesiastes, like a good science prac report, makes excellent and honest observations, but his observations and conclusions have an important variable missing. Life Simply, he says, under the sun. And so the teacher offers important commentary for a world that is void of light beyond what is just observable, a reality that is devastatingly relevant for our world today. And it's what makes Ecclesiastes so relatable because it's not only asking the question of life under the sun, taking its observations to its fullest conclusion, I think it empathizes with the cry of so many despondent hearts, what is the point? What is the meaning of it all? Vanity of vanities. And so today we experience the teacher's observations, particularly as life relates to wealth. And we're left hanging with that same question, what is the point? In a world so saturated by the pursuit of wealth and a never-ending spiral of consumption, where purpose is so wrapped up in the pursuit of personal gain and capital and career. This message and this wisdom is for us. This is the reality check we need as we dislodge the idols of our hearts. Yes, you and me have a problem. But it's also relevant because our pursuit of unsatiable gain is under threat. I mean, just drive past the petrol station. And we feel that strain on our identities as what we've worked for is slipping away. This is where Ecclesiastes leads us, and maybe this is the question 
you need to ask today, are you satisfied with the conclusion of your life's pursuit? So today we're going to look at the teacher's observations and hypothesis, and it takes us to a pretty dark place. But then we're going to look at the missing variable and the alternative conclusion that the scriptures point to and the very the, the answer that we're looking for, the very thing that may be missing in your life. So let me pray for us as we come to God's word this morning. Our Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for your word. Just pray that you'd sustain my voice and that uh, there would be no distractions today. Our Lord, sometimes we can have this blind spot to our consumerism and our wealth. And I just pray, Lord, give us a vision of Jesus. As much as Ecclesiastes and his wisdom is dark, Lord, I pray that the light of Jesus and your goodness would shine forth in our hearts, that you would change us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have your Bibles open, if you've got one, to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. This is what we're going to be working through step by step, where we left off last week up until the end of chapter 6. And at the start of chapter 5, the teacher's writing about the experience of entering the house of God. And from verse 8, it's as if he's walked out the door and he's looking around him and he's now making these observations of the world and trying to make sense of it. So let's look at verse 8, observation number 1. There is injustice baked into our systems. So read with me, verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness... Do not be amazed at the matter, for the high officials watch by a higher, and there are things yet higher, higher ones over them. Now, this isn't a teacher commentating right now, he's just observing the reality. In the context of asking these questions of life and wisdom, he's confronted with this reality people are poor. Justice and righteousness are violated. And he says it's no surprise because no one's taking responsibility for it. One official passes the buck onto another official, and, and that official, they in turn, won't take responsibility as there is someone above them. We too can observe the fact that countless laborers slave away in horrific conditions to mine the nickel that make up the phones in your pocket, and yet no one takes responsibility. It's the fact that thousands of lives are destroyed by poking machines designed to exploit addictions, and yet no one is taking responsibility. It's the fact that our pornography addictions fuel a human trafficking industry, enslaving and abusing millions of innocent women and children, and no one is taking responsibility. This is the teacher's observations. There's, there's injustice baked into our system. And yet he does offer some wisdom at this point that does make a difference. Verse 9, but this is gain for a land in every way. A king committed to cultivated fields. A good king, a decent leader willing to commit to do something. Someone who takes responsibility. Maybe that's you. Maybe you could be someone who takes responsibility. Observation, that's one. Number two, more money, more problems. Verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not 
let him sleep. This is what he's saying. The more money people have, the more investments, the more business ventures, the more that others are hassling them, the more stress you have and the less satisfaction. So he talks about a builder that goes home, finishes work, lies down, sleeps. But the rich banker barely gets out of the office by 9 p.m., is up all night stressing over an important tender and finds himself reading work emails to 2 a.m. I wonder how's your sleep going right now? What are the things that are occupying your mind as you go to sleep? Are you a satisfied person? We've all been duped to think that we won't be satisfied unless we have stuff. And we need to make money quick to get that stuff. I mean, whoever thought afterpay and credit was a good idea for human flourishing? Our appetites are so insatiable that we're willing to walk into debt to have things that we don't have money to pay for. It's totally upside down. And the more stuff we have that just goes nowhere, which leads to the teacher's third observation. Observation number three, we're born empty-handed and we die empty-handed. Verse 13, there is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his own hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. He is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. So you've slaved all your life, you've spent years studying, toiled late nights, neglected relationships, but hey, you've got an incredible super. Well, good for you. You die, and you can take none of it with you. And so the teacher observes, well, that sucks. That's a grievous evil. What a waste. And so what does the teacher suggest? Observation number four, well, it goes better for those who simply enjoy what they've got. Verse 18, behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy him and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, that's a gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So this is the wisdom of the teacher. The person who is content with what they have has a better quality of life. We accept the hand we've been dealt. We rejoice that we get to work. We get to enjoy great things in this life. So are you content with what you have? Would God's joy occupying your heart be a good distraction from the toil of your work? And you know, this would be a good place to stop, right? Because that's the answer we'd expect. If we observe that we live in a broken world, that money doesn't really satisfy us, and that we can't take any of it with us when we die, then the conclusion, right? The answer is just make the most of it. Find contentment in what you do have. And hey, there's wisdom in that. But I don't think the teacher is satisfied with this conclusion. 
nor do I think you are. For one, it doesn't speak to the injustices introduced in verse 8, nor does it answer for his question of life's meaning, which leads to somewhat now contradictory observation. And this one he says is heavy, observation number five. A heart with no desire is still unsatisfied. Verse 1 of chapter 6, we continue. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys him. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. I mean, just stop there. He's, he's just said that a man is blessed to be given much from God. Now we have another man who is given so much that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, and yet he's unsatisfied. Vanity, he says. He still hasn't arrived to the point of it all. And then it takes him to an even darker place. Verse 3, he says, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and also he has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do all not go to the one place. I want to be sensitive here. The teacher is not making light of the worth or meaning of a child who is stillborn. In fact, he points to the reality that it finds more rest than the men. And I hope if you've experienced a stillbirth that you'll find comfort in these words that your child was not without worth. Instead, the teacher is using a startling comparison in search for meaning. Under the sun, a man is born, he accumulates wealth and dies without meaning. How is he any better off than a child who doesn't live? And so in despair, he cries out, do not all go to the one place. I mean, in a really dark way, it just gives perspective to all the things we get so stressed over. And so next observation, and we're getting nearly getting to the end of this, observation number six, if we can't be satisfied, then who cares if we're a wise man or a fool? So look at verse seven. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. All our toil, and we're still left hungry. So what does it matter then if we're a rocket, science or a rocket scientist or we live off the doll? Well, the teacher observes again, verse 9, it's better to be satisfied than to have a wandering appetite. But then as if to just throw his hands up again, it's like, even this is striving after wind, vanity. To totally succumb to this spiral of despair, he makes his conclusion. Then what's the point of it all anyway? Verse 10. 
Whatever has come to be has already been known, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? It's he's saying it's, it's not even worth the breath arguing over this. What advantage is it to talk about this any longer? It's concluded the stronger argument prevails. Verse 12, he says, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? Conclusion, what's the point? Who knows? Who can tell a man what will be after him? And these are the questions our world will be asking after the allure of secularism wears off. A 19th century secular philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, had the guts to take enlightenment thought to its fullest end. And he asked the same question that the teacher of Ecclesiastes asked of life under the sun, void of life. And so he tells the story. I want to share it with you. Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours? He ran to the marketplace and he cried incessantly, I'm looking for God, I'm looking for God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing together there, he excited considerable laughter. Have you lost him then, said one. Did he lose his way like a child, said another. Thus they shouted and laughed. The madman sprang into their midst and pierced them with his, gla with his glances. Where has God gone? He cried, I shall tell you. We have killed him, you and I. We are his murderers. But how have we done this? What did we do when we unchained the earth from its sun? Are we not perpetually falling backward, sideward, forward in all directions? Is there any up or down left? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Do we not hear anything yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we not smell anything yet of God's decomposition? God's too decompose. God is dead. The madman fell silent and again regarded his listeners, and they too were silent and stared at him in astonishment. At last, he threw his lantern to the ground, and it broke and went out. This is an Enlightenment philosopher in the 18th century asking that question with his parable. What's the meaning left if we're just going to detach from God, untether the earth from the sun? What meaning remains? And this is dark thinking, and Nietzsche made the wrong Conclusion, thinking that society could ever kill God as if it was something that we invented. Ecclesiastes asks us to wrestle with this question. What is the point under the sun? Ecclesiastes asks you to wrestle with this question for your friends and co-workers, your, your family members, your neighbors. How would you answer this question for them? Or are we satisfied that contentment and the good life alone is anything but a waste. The teacher, he's made his observations of reality and he suggests at this point his hypothesis, his conclusion. But like Angus's hungry mouth taking away my Bunsen burner nuts, we're forced to consider that we're missing a variable. 
a variable is missing. And you know this. Let me take you to Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, the missing variable. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. In other words, your value and your life's pursuit won't be found in wealth which passes away. Storing up treasure under the sun will only decay and be lost. But, he says, verse 20, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven above the sun. Where, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says, store your treasure in heaven, in his kingdom satisfaction. And this can never be lost, never be taken away, never passes away. And so Jesus then offers this wisdom at the end. As he continues in sermon a bit further down in verse 31 of chapter 6. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This is the missing variable, that there is investment to be made that transcends this life. There is a kingdom of God. Our creator has not abandoned us to perish without meaning in this broken world. He has weaved a beautiful story of salvation, pointing us to true life. And Jesus had the audacity to say, where satisfaction would be found. He said, it is me. Let me take you to John chapter 6, verse 27. Jesus is speaking. He says, do not work or toil for food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And those with him, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What's the toil? What do we got to do? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so they said to him, still confused, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Satisfy us. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I mean, let's just sit in that for a moment. Never hunger, never thirst. Jesus, the bread of life, the satisfaction, the meaning. The purpose of it all. So given the same observations that the teacher does helpfully give us, plug in the new variable. We come to a different but satisfactory conclusion. A satisfactory conclusion. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. It would be helpful if you had this in front of you. And Paul, the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy and he ends this letter with an indictment 
of those who are causing division and leveraging for personal gain. And he calls on, I think, this same wisdom from Ecclesiastes, but he makes a different conclusion. Now listen if any of this sounds familiar to what we've just read. Our verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. He said, contentment is great gain. He says, we bring nothing into the world, we take nothing out. And he talks about the love of money. I mean, does that sound familiar to you? But he makes a different conclusion. Verse 11, he says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Flee the empty pursuit of wealth. But he says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, Love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight, toil, the good fight of the faith. Not the empty toil of, of just accumulating wealth. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the confession in the presence of many witnesses. And so verse 13, he continues, it says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He, and he gets excited here, he who is blessed, the only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. That's where his satisfaction is. That's where his hope is. But he's not done yet. This conclusion isn't finished. Verse 17, he says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them. Not to be haughty or arrogant. Not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. But on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Paul's answer to the vanity and uncertainty of wealth and this life, he says, put your hope in God. Put your hope in God. Have you trusted God with your life? Will you remove your dependency on your personal gain and self-centeredness and rebellion instead come to Jesus who accepts you. Who paid the ultimate death. He suffered the weight of vanity and God's judgment that we deserved that we might in exchange receive free grace, the bread of life, forgiveness and walk in the fullness of true life true meaning have you trusted God with your life and are you satisfied in him and still God's not done with us there's more to this satisfactory conclusion because, because this should not leave us unconcerned with the way things are in this world so he says verse 18 they are 
still talking to the rich in this age, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of the life which is truly life. True life. Church, we need to wake up from our paralysis to shake off the wet blanket of consumerism that is stifling the fire of God who wishes to do great things through us, through, through this church, but the church in the West. If only we would take our eyes off our bank accounts, take our eyes off our Instagram accounts and our comforts and our careers and trust him. Look to Jesus. And so as a way of application and conclusion, I want to finish for us a vision of what this church can be. And God is doing a magnificent thing through God's people here. But I want to inspire you. I want to paint a, a, a picture for you, a vision based on this passage of a people. Imagine that the people of this church were known for being content. They work, they study, they labor, but they don't love their money. They have limits to their ambitions because they're concerned most about God's kingdom in this world. And at night they sleep and they're arrested. Could that be us? Imagine that the people of this church, they don't pursue wealth, rather they pursue righteousness and justice, which happen to be the same word in the Greek here that Paul uses. They pursue righteousness. They care about their character. They're big on responding in love towards others. They are gentle and kind. They have the quiet steadfastness and resilience, not swayed by fear or controversy. Let's be that kind of church. Imagine that the people of this church took hold of the eternal life. That was their prize. Jesus was the air they breathed, the life they live. A church with a vision of a king who is so unbelievably magnificent and glorious and wonderful. A church that just can't help but burst into praise of their king, Jesus. Imagine that the people of this church were not arrogant. They have nothing good of themselves, no resources, no buildings, no history, no bank accounts that make them any good, but their hope is in God. And so they have joy in what he's laid before them, but they have it with an open hand. And so imagine that the people of this church were known for their good deeds. They were rich in good deeds, were known for being extravagantly generous and indiscriminately sharing. Their wealth is not theirs to hoard, but they choose to live a lower quality of comfort for the sake of sharing with those who have need. Why? Because they're interested in storing up treasure in heaven. Be a church, City Reach Oakton, that takes hold of the life that is truly life, where Jesus is our treasure. We might be a force of God's kingdom in this world as he fills us with his spirit. So let's have that vision. Let's be that people. I know God is doing mighty things, and I'm excited to think what God will continue to do as we proclaim Jesus, as we're satisfied in Jesus. Hope's not in this world. 
Hope's not under the sun. Our treasure is in heaven. So let me pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we just love you in this moment. We worship you. You are so good, so good to satisfy us. Lord, thank you that we are a people that are not left without meaning, but that you have given us indescribable worth and value. Lord, you love the world that you gave your only son, that whoever believes in you shall not perish, shall not sit under God's just judgment, but rather inherit eternal life. So, Lord, may we take hold of the life that is truly life and use us, Lord, because we are not a hand and a grip and not on the things of this world, that we might bless others, that we would be a people known for our good works, known for justice, known for compassion, known for righteousness and holiness, Lord, that we might reflect the incredible love and satisfaction that is found in the true bread of life that is Jesus. So, Lord, we worship you. We love you. We magnify you. Help us, Lord. I pray for those here this morning that maybe haven't tasted and seen that you are good or trusted you with their life. I pray, Lord, that you might give them a vision of how good you are and a vision of this world that is passing away that you might bring salvation to hearts this morning. As we take our eyes off ourselves and put them onto you, as we trust you, we put our faith in you, we store our treasure not under the earth, not under the sun, but Lord, with you who reigns eternally. And I pray for myself and for those of us, Lord, who struggle with the idols of consumerism and comfort and wealth, Lord, help us to be content. Help us to not hold on tightly to those things, but move us, Lord, to generosity. Move me, Lord, to generosity. God, that you might be praised as we await for your return to bring the fullness of your justice and restoration. So, Lord, we look forward to you and we love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.